Kevin, tell those European men to give more aid like they say they would. Kevin, tell your powerful mates in the G8 that payment is late and 1.4 billion people wait. First colonial, a phony, Sarkozy knows he's got it wrong. Poverty need not be. If you feel it in your souls, let's go for the Millennium Development Goals. You are listening to MDG, a look at the Millennium Development Goals with Dan and Dom. Looking at today's show, that being um, Goal 8, the final of the um, Millennium Development Goals, um, the Goal 8 being um, develop a global partnership for development. Um, in the year 2000, in September 2000, um, all of the world's leaders gathered at New York City um, at the United Nations headquarters um, for the Millennium Summit, um, where they agreed to um, a range of promises. Um, a bunch of them including the Millennium Development Goals, which met, um, or committed rather, a, um, a variety of, of goals, um, including such topics as extreme poverty and hunger, um, universal education, um, gender equality, empowering women, um, child mortality, and, and other various things to, um, to lead the, um, the world to various um, development measures to, to reach um, and guide um, various development measures um, measured from a 1990 baseline um, to be achieved by 2015. So um, as of we're currently in 2011, we have four um, years left. So again, today's program looking at um, goal eight, the final, um, develop a global partnership for development. Uh, coming up later on the program, we have um, lucky enough to have um, former Young Australian of the Year and founder of the Oak Tree Foundation and also Global Poverty Project. But um, Dan Pedrick, how are you? I'm very well, Dom. How good, are you? Good. Do, do you like this goal? I'm going to... Uh, I do like this goal. Yep. I'm going to contest it on purely grammatical grounds. Sure, sure. Um, I just don't like the fact that they used the word develop twice in the, um, in the oh, goal. Yeah. Develop a global partnership for development. How do you reckon we should, we should, they should have rephrased that? Um, maybe... Formulate? Formulate. Formulate. Yeah. It's, it's pretty oh, dense for... for a, the the, the, the title is usually pretty snappy of the mm. development goals. Mm. Anyway, anyway. That, that's neither here nor there. Yep. Um, but within, within this particular goal eight, we have a range of targets, as we always do um, with the Millennium Development Goals. We have six within this particular goal. We have um, ones looking at the training, fina- trading and um, financial system. Uh, more specifically, it's um, develop further an open, rule-based, predictable, non-discriminatory trading and financial system. Um, secondly, uh, address the special needs of the least developed countries, um, or LDCs. Um, also address the special needs of landlocked developing countries and small island developing states. Um, the fourth target being deal comprehensively with the debt problems of developing countries through national and international measures in order to make debt sustainable in the long term. The fifth um, target being in cooperation with pharmaceutical companies provide access to affordable essential drugs in developing countries. And the final target within goal eight being in cooperation with the private sector, make available the benefits of new technologies, especially information and communications. They've packed a chocker, Stan. To me, this I, I think this is... There's some really great stuff in this one, and it's really, really ambitious, which I like, but it sort of seems to me a little bit like they've, they've gotten to the end, Yeah, they've decided on eight, and they've sort of gone gone through and gone, oh, we got a bit left. Yeah. <laughs> let's just pack it um, all into the final d- let's goal. Let's develop a global partnership for development. <laughs> Use development twice. Shut up. <laughs> no, I think um, 
I think this is a really, really interesting one, and there's so much in here. It's probably compared to the other seven that we've looked at, with a few ex- exceptions, most of them are quite um, uh, measurable. Yeah. Um, you know, increases, decreases, this kind of thing. And while there's there's elements of that in here, there's quite a lot of this particular goal that I think is just sort of quite far-reaching. It's yep. just, um, you know, th- there's things in here that are very measurable and you can be accountable to, but there's also stuff like uh, the first target there to develop an open rule-based predictable non-discriminatory training and financial system is, for me, like, I mean, that's that's the basis of the world that's the basis of yeah. international <laughs> relations generally like it's it's that's obviously deliberately broad but so much goes into that potentially you could break that down into itself yeah. into several different goals because um doing that would obviously uh help the um you know a lot of developing countries yeah. and and western countries as well but the process by which you do that is extraordinarily complex yeah and also um for, for those those playing at home um, an easy way to remember the um, each, each, each of the goals when you when you Google them, there's there, there's a nice there's a nice little imagery um, for, if you become familiar with it. It's, it's a way to help remember. This is the the Siamese quadruplet one. That's that, <laughs> that's the symbol of goal eight. It's it's Siamese quadruplets all with their arms around each other. So that's that's, that's how you remember goal eight for global partnership for, de- for development. I, I know you're a fan of the nation state. I like this one because I increasingly think like I, I, I like I like everyone working together sort of thing. That yeah. Mm. Yeah. No, I, I, I think I'll, I'll go no further with that. No, no, no. I think you're right. I, I, I've never. I think there's been a lot of problems caused by the nation state, and yep. I'm not a I'm not a huge fan. And by this, we just basically mean you know individual countries yep. that have sovereignty, which means yep. that you know other countries can't just come in the, yep. on their land and you know all this kind of stuff, and they have their own yep. governmental systems yep. and all this kind of stuff. Um, I, I, no, I think that we're moving into a world that's a lot more international globalized obviously um i wouldn't say i'm a a massive i think when the nation state was sort of formulated which was like um treaty of westphalia long long time ago 1648 i think um it was the best i the best way and the best idea to stop people being at war constantly yeah and it marginally worked there was still a lot of wars after it but um i think at the moment there's there's so much of a move toward international stuff um, and sort of an internationalised world. But at the same time, what we're looking at at the moment, all of these international partnerships still need to come from the nation state nation because state, yep. that's the predominant yep. system and how the world works at the moment. So I think that why this is a global partnership and also why it's so difficult, yep. um, which we talked about a little bit last week with sustainable development, is you've got all these different individual countries with their yep. own interests and their own economies and all this kind of stuff and yeah. getting them to agree on something like this is super difficult i like how this global partnership goal being number eight has come immediately after number seven as as eight inevitably does with seven mm. um but that, uh, goal seven for for those who had the misfortune of missing out of last week's um show which was um ensure environmental sustainability which naturally you know we're all on that together sort of thing what happens in one side of the planet affects what happens on the other side of the planet environmentally um in climate climate climat- no, it's not climactically. Otherwise, that'd be the end. Mm. It's cl- climatically. Yes. Um, so yeah. So I think this one follows well after goal seven. Definitely. Do you have anything further to add before we go to the Look, quick breakdown? Um, it, it's very dense, and we've got some good signposts in that it's been break, broken down into all these um, targets. So mm-hmm. maybe we should um, take a break, Get and then it. we'll look into them Beautiful. individually. You are listening to Goal 8, Develop a Global Partnership for Development on MDG, a look at the Millennium Development Goals with Dan and Dom. The prospects are mixed at best. 
There are many countries in Asia that may be able to lift millions out of poverty. In Africa, very few countries at this stage are on track to meet these targets. You are listening to MDG, a look at the Millennium Development Goals with Dan and Dom. Um, today's program looking at Goal 8, which is um, develop a global partnership for development. Currently looking at um, two of the first targets um, within Goal 8, um, those being um, initially we'll look at develop further an open rule-based predictable non-discriminatory trading and financial system which deals with trading and financial systems and the second um, target 8b being address the needs of the least developed countries and we'll also couple in with that because um, it's quite similar with um, target ab um, target ac 8c which is um, address the special needs of landlocked developing countries and small island developing states. So those latter two targets looking at both least developed countries and also landlocked and small island developing states. Dan, um, in terms of the trading and financial system, I've got to be honest, I didn't straight off the bat 100% get this one. Um, Whether it was, like, is it looking at um, uh, ODA or overseas development systems or is that more... The way that I... I see this one anyway. Uh, they're all interlinked, these first three, in yep, terms of, yep, yep. Um, you know, debt, helping countries and that kind of stuff. Um, in ter- I'm going to bore you a little bit with, with the history as I understand it. Bore me. Um, so when we first kind of had all these countries being formed and, and nation states being formed and yep. stuff, um, long time ago, we're talking, you know, 16th, 17th century yep. for a lot of them. And obviously, you know, there'd been country yep, areas yep. long time before that yep. um but when sort of international trade and that kind of stuff was kicking off especially like sort of in the 18th 17th and 18th centuries um there was a there was a big move at the start about like protectionism mm-hmm. and we still say now like um i read a news story today about you know australia moving towards protectionism and the yep. dangers of that so and what we mean by that is um basically if you're a country and you produce something yeah right um, you want to try to protect that industry. Yep. So, say in Australia, we have a small uh, car manufacturing industry, yep. right? So, the government does quite a bit to support our car making industry because if it was completely opened up and everything, mm-hmm. um, we'd, you know, there's other car making industries like Germany's and America's yep. and um, Japan's that are so much bigger than ours yep. that if we don't support our own industry, we're just going to be, it's going to be completely overrun by international things because we don't compete on a, mar- a market for that, right? So <clears throat> the idea of protectionism is instead of opening up and having like free trade, mm-hmm. you um, do as much as you can, can for your own industry in a certain area. So you provide subsidies for them. Mm-hmm. Um, you make tariffs really high. to um, So people, you know, it costs a lot of money to import things in that particular, yeah. that particular industry. Whereas if you've got an industry that you're smashing everyone at yeah. right for instance mining like you know we're, we're yeah. really great at mining and we've got so many natural resources that's the kind of the kind of industry where we want um, it to be as liberal as we can yeah. and we want to get as many exports as we can and it to be as easy and cheap to export as we can yeah. because we know that if that's all opened up we're yeah. still going to be able to compete yeah. on a global level so <laughs> the problems that this creates is um Say like Britain when it was, you know, had all its colonies and was this massive empire, was, you know, the biggest empire the world had ever seen. Um, They were promoting free trade, um, largely with their colonies, so it's a little bit different. But, you know, when you are the biggest kind of uh, power, you know, global power in that, and you've got all the economy and all the industry, 
free trade's great. Mm. Um, not in all areas. You'll even see, like, with America, you know, there's been all these stalls with free trade agreements with there mm. because they have some smaller industries and that kind of stuff. But um, generally, it's seen as a better idea for everybody in the world. So everyone benefits if everybody just had open free trade, right? But it's really, really hard to push that through and to make everyone want to have that because there's individual industries in your country that are going to yeah. really suffer because of that. So I guess, and I'd be interested to get your thoughts as well, but I will move to the finance stuff in a minute. But just yeah. in terms of like trading, if you're a big industrial country and you have a lot of trade and a lot of exports and stuff, that can be seen as, um, you know, it's an unfair system because if yeah. you're a small island state, maybe you've only got one thing that you can export. Yeah. So you're really disadvantaged by that system. Yeah. But it seems to me like a really hard thing to create a global even system when the nations themselves are so uneven. Yeah. I don't know. What are, what are your thoughts on the trade side of it? I, don't, I feel like I, I still got a lot to learn when it comes to trade. Um, I do like I do like it to favour development sort of where it can sort of thing, um, especially in terms of like agricultural subsidies and like Europe and um, uh, the US and that sort of thing. But... Yeah, I guess that's probably the, the aspect I come into it, um, like I my interest in, it, I suppose. But um, yeah, I, 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 yeah, like I said, I think I've still got like quite a bit to, to learn when it comes to, to understanding trade. I, I think I think it's very interesting, though, very fascinating. Definitely, and it's so complex. Like, yeah. there's still so much, you know, so much more like that. You know, there is to learn about, and so yeah. much more I want to learn about it. But essentially, you know, if you're a really small country or something like that, and you have, say, one primary export, yeah. so say, um, you know, your your primary export is um, cocoa. Yeah. Let's say, you know, cocoa beans kind of thing. Um, your idea for how you can become a player or how you can become important in the global economy in terms of trade is, you know, you'll export as much of that as you can. Yeah. And then for everything that's sort of like in, you're importing, yeah. you'll set really high tariffs on it. So people need to pay you a lot, a lot of yeah. money, basically, if, um, if you're going to buy anything into yeah. your country, um, but you try to make your exports as large as you possibly can. Yeah. And it's about... Um, you know, everyone wants to have like a trade surplus, yep. like to be exporting more than yep. they're importing. Um, and it seemed like the healthiest thing ever to have a trade surplus, surplus, which I don't necessarily agree with. But, you know, whenever like the US at the moment, it has a massive trade deficit. I think yep. it's about 50 billion or something. Okay. Um, and everyone's really worried about the trade deficit. Yep. Um, and there's different arguments about whether it's bad or good to have a trade deficit. Yep. But generally, if you know, you don't hear about you always hear in your country how good your exports are. Yeah. You never hear like politicians saying, oh, our imports are great. Like imports are way up. Like it's always, you know, oh, we're exporting to everyone. Yeah. Everyone wants to buy our stuff. And I think that's really hard to, to buy into if you're a small country that's either has a small industrial thing, yeah. uh, industrial workforce or doesn't, isn't, um, doesn't have a lot of natural resources or isn't very good agriculturally. You know, if you're a small country, you're only going to have one or two industries. Yeah that are going to be able to compete on a global system. So you're really tied into, a lot of the time, your local neighbours. Yeah. Um, the countries that are just around you who are more likely to sort of, you know, have smaller yeah. export-import kind of agreements between the two and that kind of stuff. Cool. So. Also within um, those three targets, um, both the trading financial system, least developed countries and landlocked and small island developing states, um, one of the measures was official development assistance. Um 
as things stand, I've, I've got my, my hot little hands on the, the brand spanking new 2011 Millennium Development Goals report. Isn't it great that, um, you know, by the time these shows come out, people will be listening to them a little bit later. Yep. And, um, you know, they might be asking, oh, why haven't the guys ever referenced during the last eight episodes <laughs> the brand new 2011 report? That's because it just came out. Right as we finish right, the show. Those interfering people at the UN uh, <laughs> report publishing that, that is an a, That's an affront to <laughs> that humankind. Is that's an affront to Dan and I's dignity. <laughs> Much like open defecation. Um, so aid, aid to, develop, to developing countries is a record high, um, but it's still falling short of the promises that were made in 2005 at Glen Eagles when um, the Group of Eight um, Summit met um, and committed to increase their insistence, which I think... It happened at the same time as the London bombings, and I always thought that was a conspiracy. I, I remember thinking back <laughs> like, like, like that somehow the UK government like, like did that so that they, they didn't have to... Everyone was distracted from Glen Eagles. But um, they, they committed to it anyway. It's just that they, have, they, haven't, just, they haven't followed on. So. Dom, Dom's crazy conspiracies are not endorsed by MDG yeah. or the UN generally, or me. Dom, Dom's conspiracies are an affront to Dan's dignity. <laughs> And, and credibility. Um, in 2010, also the net aid disbursements, or all up, the net, oh, sorry, the net is net is what happens after after gross after, after gross. Yeah. Um, they've amounted to 128 billion, which is the equivalent to 0.32 percent. If you remember nothing from this, um, from listening to this entire um, program, it is the number zero, and and you and you do remember one thing. Yeah. It's the number 0.7 percent. A lot of people, um, the, the, the layman, might go. Well, you know, it's such a big problem in the world. How do, how do we resolve poverty? It's, that, it's, that sounds like me. <laughs> sounds like you're trying to do my voice there. I, I consider myself a layman. Well, well, well layman, it's, it's, it's the economists believe it's simple. They believe that um, with 0.7% of the gross national income, so that's all of the income of every single person um, in all the, the, the rich countries in the world, if you like, um, if they gave 0.7%, which, which we could do quite easily through tax, imagine for 0.7% of every... Hundred dollars you make is seven. Is it seven dollars or seventy cents? It's it's not much. It's, mm. it's, it's not much. It's very little. For, for every hundred dollars you make, it's, it's seventy, 70 cents. cents. Yeah. Okay. So think of every hundred dollars you make. If you gave seventy cents, and you, and you're a rich person that's listening, mm. that would the economists believe that would meet the Millennium Development Goals. Mm. And obviously, a large, uh, you know, this is the onus of this. Not saying that individual personal donations no, because, and stuff because we're going to be doing this through tax yes yes so the onus of it is of the state to provide this yeah. not you know in conjunction with you know private business and all this kind yeah. of stuff but the idea is that it, it comes out of taxation because foreign aid is an element of you know it's it's budgeted in, yeah. in a federal budget of a country exactly. so yeah but um, <coughs> as things stand at the moment from the most recently published report it's at 0.32% so they're Less than half. They're less than half of what they've committed to do um, in meeting 0.7%. And what would meet the Millennium Development Goals? And in the wake of the um, global financial crisis in 08, um, yeah, we can expect leaner years ahead, the, um, the report believes. I want to um, I want to unpack this, the, the, the financial system part, yep. along with the um, with debt and that kind of stuff. Yep. Maybe after we take after a break. Yep. break. Yeah. You are listening to MDG, a look at the Millennium Development Goals today, looking at Goal 8 with Dan and Dom, develop a global partnership for development. And a decade ago, at the dawn of a new millennium, we set concrete goals to free our fellow men, women and children from the injustice of extreme poverty. You are listening to MDG, 
a look at the Millennium Development Goals with Dan and Tom. Today's program, looking at the final, we've reached the, the climax. Not, not, not the climatic, because that would, that would indicate we're looking at climate. The, the climactic. Correct. There's, there's, there's two C's in there. Yep. Uh, which is goal A, to develop a global partnership for development. In the previous um, talk break, we were discussing um, uh, target A, our trading and financial system, which we'll touch on again, um, further unpack the financial system. We also looked at um, least developed countries and landlocked and small island developing states. Within those targets um, were the topics of um, official development assistance, but we'll kind of look at that as well as the um, fourth target within goal eight, which was target D, um, looking at external debt or more specifically... Uh, deal comprehensively with the debt problems of developing countries through national and international measures in order to make debt sustainable in the long term. Dan. Mm. So, <clears throat> looking at a combination of uh, the, you know, the first few targets we've got here, and one part, we talked a little bit before about the, the trade part, mm-hmm. um, and another part of this is the financial system yep. that operates. Now, global financial systems to me are just extraordinarily complex complex. and i think unless you're like an economist or a lot smarter than i am um it's really really hard to get your head around how how markets operate how financial system how monetary systems operate and in some cases that's how the global financial crisis happened because there were certain types of securities out there that even people who who were meant to be like chief executives didn't really know how they worked Mm. anyhow so instead of i guess trying to um you know explain how you would come up with you know a, a financial system that's open rule-based predictable and non-discriminatory yep. i'll leave that to economists yeah what i want to look at is um we started looking at it before with um the the oda you know yep. f- foreign aid um at the moment with that zero uh that 0.7 of a percent of yep. gdp the well, 70 o- cents to every dollar yeah make it easy hundred dollars every se- 70 cents to every hundred dollars mm. seven cents to every dollar yeah, so that's an easy way of doing it. Yeah. Um, the countries that have met that target. Now, these are... This is the name and shame. The, these, are, these are your common... These are like your gold star countries in this a lot of areas. This is your Yeah. Denmark, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, Norway, Sweden. Well done. Well, well done. done. Well done. As per usual, well uh, some, Scandina- some Scandinavians in there, because they often yeah. just win at life. They, yeah. they win at society most yeah. of the time. Um the countries that are the greatest um, donators yeah. in terms of not percentage, but in terms of money. Yes. Uh, the US is number one. Yes. I believe number two is... I've got the US's... I thought I had the US's... I don't know the US's official percentage. Yep. I'm sorry. <clears throat> don't I, I don't have this one written down, so I'm going off head. So if I get it wrong, but China's quite high. Really? I think so. Okay. We'll have to double check that one. Yep. I know that France, the UK, Fr- France has got zero point five. Has got half a percent. Yep. Um, in, this is in terms of actual um, yep, yep, monetary quantity, donations, yep, 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 like yep, quantity of donations. Yep. The US is number one. I know that France is up there. Um, the UK is up there. Yep. Um, China, I might have to check, but I, I think they've got it quite a bit. Is but they are a like super all, rich country. Like, does that include like all the infrastructure? Like investments in Africa? Yes. Cool, cool, cool. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, but there's obviously loads and loads of... So, so what we're saying is the idea is that all countries meet this 0.7, right? Yeah. There are countries in the world that are going to... That, that 0.7 is going to be a hell of a lot more money if you're a country like the United States of America yeah. compared to if you're Luxembourg. Yeah. And while it's 
a brilliant achievement that any country meet this yeah. um, and in some ways a minimum requirement if yeah. we want to meet a goal like this obviously getting the largest economies in the world on board yeah. is a is a very good place to start I read a really fascinating thing um, yesterday um, from Jeffrey Sachs's Commonwealth I'll, I'll try and kind of get through this as quickly as possible but um, basically he was looking at uh, the three different categories of the developing countries that being the social welfare states which pretty much includes all those nations that you um, named before um, that actually had met um, or exceeded 0.7% so we're looking at Scandinavian countries Um, I think that was perhaps it Netherlands was straddling but they were um, fit into the second category which was um, mixed mixed economies mixed economy which was a bit of a combination of social welfare states which social welfare states being um, they spend the government spends a lot of money Mm. and within that they spend a lot of money on social programs so so things like um, uh, like yeah I think you we won't go any further than that but and also there was the final category was um free market um countries which included australia um and also featured um america japan and there were countries which didn't spend as much i think that was he gave proportions i can't think of them off the top of my head but um but they gave considerably less um the government spent considerably less money and again spent within that spent considerably less money on social programs um, I, f- I found I found this um, how he looked at them particularly interesting in just in that um, th- probably for the context of I find the whole Amer- what's happening in America at the moment which has probably happened forever in America the whole you know like are we spending too is, is government too big or do we need you know does, does the, f- the free market need to reign sort of thing and that basically um, for, for starters all the the social welfare states obviously donated the most sort of thing but because they are also lo- and they also looked after their their own um, economy sort of thing and that I guess that the the nature of the um, the American debate um, between the free market and sort of like the social welfare state has become like the, the rhetoric if you like has become so heated mm. um, and really polarized you've got yeah it's kind of just people moving further to the left yeah. and other people just moving further to the right but that a lot of that argument was <clears throat> Like often not based necessarily in fact, sort of thing, just on ideology, mm. but that by fact, by like the, the science of this sort of thing, which is economics, that social welfare states actually benefit the population the best, like far more than free market things, and their economies are always better, and across so many sort of levels that this, this, the science demonstrated that, and that also, I guess, one of the points within that was that that had a flow-on effect to all those social welfare states also had the highest levels of international foreign aid mm. um I've, i found my statistics and i do yes. need to apologize um apology accepted i had the um united states yeah this is the largest volume donors yeah united states france germany united kingdom and japan was the other one japan, i was searching japan. for so china japan, really i'm not a, even a little surprised about yeah japan. I, I knew there was an east asian one in there okay and for some reason i assume china just because it's such a large economy yeah, yeah um and as you say there's a lot of investment and stuff but uh this is just donations so this mm-hmm. is ODA volume donations yeah. um, Japan United States France Germany UK cool yeah do you have any further with those um, just external before, debt just before we go to the break I just wanted to mention that um, I guess the, the the thing that's quite difficult with this is uh, I, I, no, a good way to simplify it is, is as we're saying, it, economists have tried to make it as simple as they can and development economists by saying, here's a percentage of your GDP. If yep. you can donate this much, 
it's going to you're going to be able to solve this problem. Yeah. Right. Um, just quickly before we go to the break, why do you think uh, foreign aid is a good investment as well as just being good humanitarian? I um, basically because without like in, in certain countries in the world um, who are de- there's various categories of um, developing. Um, there's those countries you could say India is a country they have their their hand on the ladder of development, and there are other countries pretty much all of Sub-Saharan Africa and a couple of other exceptions around the globe which don't have their hand on the ladder without foreign assistance it's it's complicated and i can't explain it in one minute but and we've, we've touched on this in previous episodes mm. of mdg but um without aid s- certain countries in the world particularly sub-saharan africa is unable to develop like they're not able to help themselves unless they receive a certain amount of development aid and the good thing about development aid for those countries that don't have a hand on the rung is that once they receive that for sometimes as little as 15 years six years in some cases they don't. They don't necessarily need it. After there, they can self-sustain their aid. They just need that sort of that period of aid for seven or eight years or so. Sometimes fifteen. Um, and yeah, after that, it, it, more aid is good, obviously, but they don't need it to develop hmm. because they'll sustain themselves thereafter. Hmm. And, and in that way, I think that foreign aid can be an excellent investment because if you invest a lot of money in a developing country and that allow that country to build up its own industry and that kind of it's stuff. Market. You've, you've made a new market for yourself. You've yep. made a new trading partner, a new yep. ally, um, which is only going to help the prosperity of your country yep. plus the prosperity of, obviously, the country that you've helped out. Yep. Um, so, And I guess this really feeds into the, the global partnership that we're talking about. Yep. Um, it, it's, it's all about finding ways to make trading systems and financial systems benefit everybody. So we all yep. win instead of, you know, I sell you something yep. and I make money and you know doesn't help you at all yeah beautiful you are listening to mdg a look at the millennium development goals today's program looking at goal eight the final goal of the mdgs looking at um, develop a global partnership for development in the year 2000 189 of the world's leaders made a promise to improve the lives of the world's poorest by the year 2015 nine years on 1.4 billion people still live in extreme poverty it's time for us to re-energize this movement you are listening to MDG, a look at the Millennium Development Goals with Dan and Dom. Today's program, looking at the final goal of the MDGs, that being develop um, a global partnership for development. Woo! Woo! The end. The end. Um, target D within Goal 8 looks at external debt, or more specifically, um, the target is deal comprehensively with developing countries' as debt. Dan, do you want to walk us through? Another really, um, really complex one, but I, I think it's important that we touch on because yep. at the moment we're looking at a situation where a whole lot of developed Western countries yep. are having massive debt problems. Yep. Um, we're seeing sort of Eurozone, United States, mm-hmm. um, struggle to deal with and get on top of their own yep. debt problems, right? And they've been writing checks their asses can't cash. Mm. Correct. Yeah. Um, why might whole lots of foreign debt we've seen how they're a problem for developed countries and how they affect global markets and what a you know really like long-lasting and kind of frightening time it creates when a big country like the united states is having a debt crisis you know kind of a little bit overblown with their whole debt ceiling thing but why if you're a poor or developing country might national debt be a real problem because if Basically, a lot of these countries, um, if they're, if particularly if they're in a state of extreme poverty, they can never create a surplus in their own earnings to even market their own goods beyond, you know, 
growing their own food just immediately for themselves. Therefore, um, their nations can't charge a tax on them because these people, you know, you can't charge a tax on, on nothing. Um, and if there's no taxes created, then you can't really pay this stuff back. Hmm. Absolutely. And um, it, it becomes quite difficult because um, if you're... You know, if you are a very poor country, and there's, there's different types of aid that you can grant to yeah. to countries. You know, aid could be investing in infrastructure in a particular country. Yeah. Aid could be flat out cash donations to yeah. a country, or aid might be loaning money yeah. to certain countries. But I think that um, what we we need to look at is the ways in which that can be done in like a responsible manner. Yeah. Understanding the fact that a lot of developing countries obviously are not going to be able to. Yeah pay back that country Keeping in, in mind, a timely manner. Like, just because a country is in large state of debt isn't necessarily the citizens' fault sort of thing. Like, Perhaps like a kleptocrat was in, in power at a certain time in, in that nation's um, past and you know ran up heaps of debts. Um, I know we don't have time to, to go into this today, but the structural adjustment era of the um, of international aid um, posed by, I think it was either the World... The world yeah, it must have been the World Bank, I think, what, yeah. um, which kind of was not a good era for... for for poor countries to pay back their aid just because of the nature of that aid. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Hmm. So, after um, World War Two, and there was all these destroyed economies in Europe and stuff... Um, I think if each... Sorry, go on. No. What was your point? No, I was, was going to say, like... I won't be able to get out sickly. It's okay. <laughs> um, the, the Marshall Plan? Yeah. Um, and the, the idea was basically... The, the, a couple of organisations were created mm-hmm. um, in the US... The, the, the Bretton Woods organisations? is Bretton Woods system, yep. And we in have... Bretton Woods in New Hampshire? Correct. Yeah. Awesome. Um, and the systems that they came up with were the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, mm-hmm. and the World Bank. Which kind of reset the whole international finance system, which Target A looked at. Exactly right. Now, since then, there's been a variety of things that have been considered the, the breakdown or the failure of the Bretton Woods system, right? Mm-hmm. But this was a time in the world after, you know, this massive, enormous conflict, yeah. one of the greatest conflicts the world has ever seen. And then um, it was about, I guess, the the victor, the prevailing power yeah. out of that, that war yeah. to say, okay, well, they decided to say, you know, we're going to try and set up the UN. We're going to try and set up these systems yeah. to manage getting the world back to a place where yeah. we can all get along and you yeah. know we're not going to have another war like this and countries are going to be able to survive yeah so <clears throat> and we can still see these organizations still have a massive effect mm-hmm. um some would argue a, a decreasing one yeah. but the imf um P- particularly um um <laughs> <laughs> dsk <laughs> ma- 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 maids at the um <laughs> what, was, what, was, what was the hotel um i can't remember oh man I'm not sure which hotel it was in. in no, uh, it's Sofitel. The Sofitel the, in New the, York. The, the New York City Sofitel. <laughs> <laughs> Chambermaids. Um, Sorry, go on. And the, the IMF basically regulates um, monetary systems. The World Bank is in charge of, generally looks after development, right? Yeah. And the way that the World Bank was started was essentially to help Germany, largely, okay. and other European countries that were massively crippled by debt. Yeah. Um, to get back on their feet. But the World Bank's taken on now just generally world development. So obviously yeah. their focus has moved a lot more to you know sub-Saharan Africa and yeah. other countries and this kind of stuff. And their role as an international organisation is managing things like um, you know ha- how debt is um, managed, yep. um, how you know aid and investment is managed and this yep. kind of stuff. And they have a variety of other roles. Um, but I guess <coughs> what we're talking about here with this... Um, 
dealing with countries' debt, there's there's different ways that you can do about this. If you if a really poor country's in a situation where there's it just doesn't look like they're at all going to be able to pay their yep. debt, there's been instances in the past where you know other countries have come up with ways for them to avoid that. Whether it's writing off debt, yep, which can be done in certain extreme circumstances, or whether it's um, you know finding other ways of uh, different systems of, of managing the way that that debt is, like, you know, um, changing yep. the repayment structure or something like that. And um, we're seeing at the moment in the Western world with um, bailouts for, you know, yep. Greece yes. and this kind of stuff. And there's a load of debate about the system of how that should be done and whether it should be done at all and that kind of stuff. So the thing that I take about out of this goal is, I guess, um, understanding the realities of the fact that not all countries are on the same economic playing field. Yeah. And potentially a country that has had poor leadership in the past and has been crippled by an enormous national debt, uh, say a new um, government takes over mm-hmm. or a new um, leader takes over or something like that, you know, like you were saying, it's not necessarily going to be the citizens' fault yeah. that they're in a whole lot of debt. So finding a way globally to fairly manage the way that those countries yeah. deal with their debt yeah. um, is my very basic understanding of the the idea of this target and why we have it. Beautiful. Very succinctly put, Dan. We'll come back to look at the final two um, targets within Goal 8, those being looking at um, affordable drugs and technology. You are listening to MDG, a look at the Millennium Development Goals with Dan and Dom. Today's show looking at Goal 8, develop a global partnership for development. I do not believe it's too late to turn the tide around. It is not an easy task. It will take focus, application and sustained commitment. And it requires action, action on the part of all countries, both rich and poor. It requires developing countries to live up to the commitment that all states made to adopt comprehensive development strategies. You are listening to MDG, a look at the Millennium Development Goals with Dan and Dom. Today's program, the final of the um, the eight goals, Goal 8, Develop a Global Partnership for Development. Currently looking at the final two targets within um, Goal 8, those being looking at affordable drugs and technology, or more specifically, our... Uh, in cooperation with pharmaceutical companies, provide access to affordable, essential drugs in developing countries and target 8F being in cooperation with the private sector, make available the benefits of new technologies, especially information and communications. Dan, can you talk us to, uh, to us a little bit about um, affordable drugs? Yeah, absolutely. And we have... Um we're running out of time on this show, so we'll keep it brief. But we have talked in some of the previous shows about um, uh, these public-private partnerships yes so we we're talking about um during i think the um we we're talking about like treatments for you know hiv drugs yep. the antiretroviral drugs and things like that we we're talking about how that <coughs> because the largest pharmaceutical manufacturers mm-hmm. are big private companies yep. with massive profits and, yep. and this kind of stuff and massive r&d budgets exactly right for them to really be able to invest heavily in something like um you know drugs to help people in sub-Saharan Africa yep. or other developing areas, there needs to be a real financial incentive for them yep. to do so. Um, and at this stage, it's still a lot more financially viable for countries like this to to come up with drugs and put R&D money into things that are going to be able to be purchased broadly by people yep. in the Western world or the yep. developed world because there's a lot more money there. So I guess what we're talking about was trying to come up with partnerships where it becomes an attractive option for these countries to put more uh, sorry countries these uh, businesses to put more money and more research and development into um, things that are going to help 
yeah. uh, disease problems in the developing yeah. world and just just manufacturing enough drugs to yeah. get to all the people that require yeah. them. Um, the process by which you do that, I think, is a really difficult one, yeah. but it's interesting to think about. Yeah, I guess from those um, companies' perspectives, if they're not going to, they're not going to make any money from these countries anyway, so they make it, may as well make a little bit. Yeah, by marketing to them, and also technology, which I, I personally find this final target within um, Goal Eight particularly exciting. Um, looking into the future, um, the one that looks at um, information and communication technologies, the the progress measures um, that measure this particular target, looking at um, the telephone lines and cellular phone subscriptions, um, personal computer use, and also internet users. Um, yeah, like the, the the innovative nature of the um, of information and communications technologies, not to mention the sometimes like affordability of of the scale that they're used on, um, makes them so exciting and appealing. I think from my, my perspective. Mm. And we've seen um, uh, just looking at a couple of stats, uh, yep. around four and a half billion people globally uh, now have access to mobile phones. Yep. Uh, which is obviously a huge number. Mind Some you, countries like Kenya, it's <coughs> so popular, which is it's amazing. It's extraordinary. Mind you, only around 1.6 billion people mm-hmm. um, currently have access to the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, and why, I guess, this is such a, a major problem is we are moving so quickly to um, so much of the way that we live our lives and the way that things are done being online, mm-hmm. um, there's a real risk of developing countries being left behind in terms yep. of that. And the, the part that I t- tend to draw out of this is just the fact that like... Um, so much of the debate about how things are done yep. well, and just generally about issues and things like that are all taking place online now. Yep. And I think if we want people in developing countries to be able to weigh into those debates, this is an area that I think gives a really amazing opportunity for... Yep. Um, and I mean, like we've seen with the, the mobile phone usage, there are so many people in, um, in developing countries that yep. there are enormous markets for... Yep. Um, you know, if you're a internet service provider or yeah. a mobile phone company or something like that, yeah. it's just a matter of, I guess, having the the startup money to invest in infrastructure yeah. in areas where there'll be no infrastructure, yeah. which is really really hard. Yeah, and also looking at that, um, the if mobile phones have been so as, as successful as they have been in the developing world because they require less infrastructure um, to be built in than fixed lines. The same can be said of um, we, we Dan just mentioned before that um, internet connections haven't taken on um, as hold as as widely as mobile um, connections, but mobile broadband um, kind of offers that potential opportunity. We'll come back very shortly um, to um, have a look at our interview for Goal Eight. Um, you are listening to MDG, a look at the Millennium Development Goals with Dan and Dom. Yet we must also face the fact that progress towards other goals that were set has not come nearly fast enough. But the purpose of development, what's needed most right now, is creating the conditions where assistance is no longer needed. You are listening to MDG, a look at the Millennium Development Goals with Dan and Dom. Today's program, looking at the final goal of the MDGs, that being Goal 8, Develop a Global Partnership for Development. Um, we've got an interview coming up now, quite an exciting one. I really yeah. enjoyed talking to this guy, Hugh Evans, who is the CEO CEO of the yeah. Global Poverty Project yes. currently. Previously founded uh, Oak Tree, which is a completely youth um, volunteer run, uh, so, sorry, youth run um, organisation. Mm. Um, to do with uh, sustainable yeah. development. This, this guy's an Australian development celebrity, I reckon. He is. He has Hugh Jackman on his board for yeah. the uh, Global Poverty Project and frequently hangs out with uh, Jeffrey Sachs. Yeah. He, he mentioned, I think he name drops Sachs he did, he in the did. interview. He does. I, I forgot completely about he that. He does, he does. Wow. Um, an amazing guy, former Young Australian of the Year 
and a really from Melbourne. Yeah, and uh, a really inspirational guy in terms of uh, doing amazing work. This guy lives and breathes sustainable development. Yeah. So uh, let's hear what he has to say about goal eight. Just as a, a bit of a starter, Hugh, for um, listeners who maybe don't know about your work, I was wondering if you could give us a brief little rundown of uh, maybe some of the, the stuff that you've done in the past and uh, what some of your main goals are in terms of development. Sure. Um, so thank you very much, Dan and Dominic. It's great to chat with you today. Um, a bit of background on our work. Um, my work personally started at the age of uh, 12 and 13 years old and um, at the age of 14 was invited to the Philippines at World Vision, an experience that really um, changed my life and ultimately was a catalyst of many other things to follow. Um, growing up, I, I lived um, in India for a period of time and then also spent some time um, living and working in South Africa at the age of 19 and came back to Australia um, when I was 20 years old and, and went on to found the Oak Tree Foundation, which has become the largest youth development organization in Australia and uh, has gone on to provide over 40,000 young people in six countries with educational opportunities from South Africa, the Philippines, East Timor, Papua New Guinea, Ghana, also Cambodia. And uh, more recently, uh, myself and my close mate Dan, we ran the Make Poverty concert back in 2007. Um, we then followed that up with running... Um, Make Poverty History 07 Road Trip, where we got to project the words Make Poverty History onto the Sydney Opera House, and together with the whole coalition of wonderful aid organisations, World Vision, Oxfam and the like, we were responsible for seeing a doubling of Australia's foreign aid from 0.3% of gross national income back in 2005, looking towards a start of 0.5% by 2015. And so... This year alone, we've seen a $500 million foreign aid increase in Australia, which is headed in, in the right direction in line with, you know, groups like the UK and the UK who are already heading towards 0.7% of gross national income by 2013. So we've uh, played that role, and on the back of that work, we were approached by a man by the name of Salil Shetty at the United Nations campaign, who ultimately supported us to found the Global Poverty Project. And at the moment, I'm based in New York, working for the Global Poverty Project with the goal of influencing public policy um, in the OECD towards the achievement of the Millennium Development Goals. And we, as you know, focus specifically on Millennium Development Goal 8. And so looking at issues of macro trade, consumer-level trade, looking at issues of, of good government, combating corruption, looking at debt and financial sustainability, and looking at access to capital, um, focus largely on official development assistance. Cool. Um, what, what do you see is the uh, most important achievement in development since the goals were articulated here? I think the, the most significant achievement um, more generally, not just since the goals were articulated, is the fact that in the last 25 years, a proportion of people living in extreme poverty has plummeted from 52% of the world's population in 1981, down to 25% of the world's population in 2005. Um, but if you look at, if you analyse across the eight Millennium Development Goals, you can see that Goal 1, um, which focuses on combating extreme poverty and hunger, has actually plummeted dramatically thanks to the rise of the Southeast Asian tiger economies. But also Goal 6, to combat HIV, AIDS, malaria and other diseases, has also dropped dramatically thanks both to the incredible 
follow from the U.S. president's uh, PEPFAR program across sub-Saharan Africa, which was touted as a real success. So these programs have demonstrated how the role of official development assistance in this scale, in that, in that scale, on a, on a very large scale, can play a significant role in poverty alleviation efforts and the achievement of the Millennium Development Goals. Great. Now, um, just in terms of, uh, you know, a lot of the stuff that we're discussing here is about, you know, governments and world leaders and these kind of people making big decisions. And I think for some people that can seem like uh, maybe it's a little bit out of their reach, and especially for, uh, for young people. Now, a lot of the work that you've done has been uh, promoting advocacy amongst young people uh, to look and be interested in development. So why do you think it's so important that uh, you know, young people are involved in development and organisations such as yours when, at the end of the day, it might be you know, these bigger, older people making the decisions? Well, I think that, that ultimately the bigger, older people are, are elected by us young people. And, um, and as young people, we ultimately, at the age of 18 in Australia, can, can vote and uh, have an enormous impact on the outcome of an election. And I think that what we've demonstrated through the work of, of the Oak Tree Foundation, through the work of Make Poverty History more generally, and through our work at the Global Poverty Project, is that young people have an extremely powerful voice if they work together and if they're united behind a common mission that is greater than all of us. Because ultimately this, this mission at the end of the day isn't about any one person, it's about the 1.4 billion people who are living on less than US dollar twenty-five per day. And I think that is a, a clarion call for young people across Australia who have been born into a country that you know, is, is incredibly privileged and incredibly fortunate. You know, like, it, it really is pure chance that we were born into the suburbs of Melbourne or Sydney or Brisbane or wherever that might be. And, uh, and, and someone on the other side of the world is born into extreme poverty. It's not because we deserved it more than they did. You know, they, it's simply chance. And so I think we all have a, a responsibility to care for our brother and sister in need because we're part of this, this big planet. And I think young Australians particularly see that because they travel, you know, on a gap year or they travel, um, you know, with school. And I think that, that they recognise that the world is much greater than, than our country, Australia, and that there's a, a huge wide world out there in which we can have a massive impact. And so with that in mind, I think that people are you know, attracted to, to find an, an avenue to express that. And I think organisations like the Oak Tree Foundation or, or World Vision's work with Vision Generation or, or Make Poverty History or, in our case, the Global Poverty Project, they all provide vehicles for people to express that passion and get involved. And I think that, you know, that, that's only going to grow over the years because, you know, if I look at, I look at where Oak Tree is now compared to where it was when I left it, you know, there's thousands more members now. It's just been continually growing because I think that, as more young people recognise that they can have an impact, they naturally choose to get involved because I think it, it adds up. You know, people recognise that it, it wasn't through any um, good work of our own that we were born in a, into a rich country like Australia and therefore we have both a, a, a challenge and an opportunity to get involved. Hugh, um, 
One of the reasons that Dan and I sort of elected to do this particular program highlighting the Millennium Development Goals was, I guess, because five years out, it's looking like a lot of these goals aren't going to be met. How do you sort of assess, like, having intimately kind of worked with with the UN, but also kind of having worked at the very grassroots level, how do you kind of assess the, the probable failure to meet those goals and kind of what, what do you kind of see as the, the potential cause of, of those failures? Well, I think that... Um Obviously, some of the goals are on track to be met and yeah. clearly won't be met. Um, I think that, that you have to consider the Millennium Development Goals as a framework, yeah. not um, as basically indicators of development. So, so they're, not, they're not actually... Um, they're not, although they're time-bound targets and they provide the United Nations with that framework, they're actually ultimately up to individual member states and how they engage with the Millennium Development Goals. So, for example, looking at Goal 6, to combat HIV, AIDS, malaria, and other diseases, one of those other diseases is polio, and polio is now 99% eradicated and could be actually entirely eradicated in the next few years. But one of the challenges is at present that the regions where the remaining polio cases are, in this case on the borders of India and Pakistan and Nigeria, some of these regions are riddled by conflict. So it's very hard to deliver life-saving medication during a war zone. You know, you're just not, it's just not going to be able to do it. So, so in some instances, I think it's the failure of the nation-states individually and either their lack of capacity to engage in the Millennium Development Goals framework and have a, a robust system of monitoring and evaluation, or in the corollary, I think it is a failure of even, even uh, you know, nations in the West to adequately prioritise development. So I'm living in the United States at the moment, and the US gives only 0.2% of its gross national income in foreign aid, 0.2%. Now, all, although the volume of US aid is large, as a proportion of its enormous wealth, it is incredibly tiny. And if you survey the average man on the street here in America and you ask them, well, how much do you think you're giving aid? They actually, the average man thinks that, we, that the U.S. gives 25% of its budget in foreign aid. And then when you ask them how much should be given, they said, oh, we should tie, that should be 10%. And then when you tell them that it's only 0.2%, they're horrified. You know, they can't believe it. How could a nation such as the United States lack generosity? Of course, like, it's a hugely wealthy nation. And I think that the average punter in, in the U.S. just simply doesn't realize that the U.S. gives so little. And even that which it gives, like... You know, we're talking about a billion dollars that goes to Egypt and Israel. You know, does Egypt or Israel need foreign aid? I would, I would say no. Um, you know, this is, we're not talking about the poorest of the poor. They don't live in Egypt or Israel. They live in largely sub-Saharan Africa, Haiti, East Timor, Papua New Guinea, these sorts of regions. So if we really were serious about actually targeting extreme poverty, then we would target official development assistance. To the nations that need it most and i think that by and large because many instances governments even australian government thinks well how can we use our aid not in the interest of poverty alleviation but instead to promote our strategic interest then we're actually not alleviating poverty and so i think this is where as young people across australia we need to not just argue for more aid we need to argue for better aid and that the aid is far more targeted. We need to see good aid that actually is focused on poverty alleviation because in many instances, 
that is clearly not the case. As you highlighted, um, these these uh, goals have been a very useful framework. Um, now that we're looking to move to the end of the goals, what do you think is going to be, um, I guess, the thing that's going to keep a global imperative and keep that kind of, um, I guess, focus on aid at the forefront of world leaders and um, nation states? Do you think that's the role of NGOs or do you think the UN has still got a real role to play? Well, I think that there's already discussions about what a post-2015 framework could look like. I mean, either they recalibrate the goals or they... Because obviously the Millennium Development Goals since 2000, the landscape of development has changed. You consider the fact that, you know, MDG... Seven, which focuses on environmental sustainability, it is grossly inadequate when you consider the challenges of climate change. And so, so it, what I'm saying is that the, the, the goals themselves are not entirely accurate in the in the present climate of development. And so, there's already discussion about altering the goals and also recalibrating the targets. I caught up with Jeffrey Sachs last week, who is one of the key architects of the goals. And he is he remains confident that by twenty twenty five, which was the original goal of ending extreme poverty, that it is still possible. He uh, he recognizes all out that these that many goals haven't been achieved, but he, he himself is already part of a process of working with the UN Secretary General Ban Ki moon on the consideration of the post twenty fifteen framework. I'm of the belief shouldn't even be talking about the post twenty fifteen framework until we've reached 2015. But the truth is, we have only 2,000 days to go, which is not a lot of time to achieve the Millennium Goals. And so the countdown clock is already on, and there will be many goals that are achieved. But we at the Global Poverty Project are focused on those goals and those targets that if we move the needle politically in the US, in Australia, and elsewhere in the UK, that actually we could influence policy enough to see certain goals met. So, for example, the goal of ending polio in the next few years is something that the Global Poverty Project is working extremely hard on right now in partnership with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and also in partnership with Rotary and a range of other organisations, the World Health Organisation. We're working on that right now because we know that the goal of ending polio is useful and actually could happen even in the next few years. So, with these things in mind, we have to focus on those targets that are achievable. And I was really encouraged even to hear the news of the funding that was pledged. I think it was $4.3 billion in total towards the Global Alliance of Vaccines and Immunizations. And vaccines is an area where we can target that statistic where we hear that 22,000 children die every day due to causes that can be prevented. This is an area where vaccines play a key role. So two points. One, there's already a consideration around the post-2015 framework. But two, if we focus on those things to be achieved within the next 2,000 days, then we can have a real impact, and that's exactly what the Global Poverty Project is doing. Hugh, I'm very curious, sort of, I guess, just yourself as a personality kind of and probably one of the most sort of prominent sort of advocates and humanitarians, I guess, especially sort of... Um, for young people in Australia. I'm very curious to kind of know that just the level of, I guess, boldness that you've kind of gone about your work, I'd really kind of be curious just for your own insights into your own 
motivations. I think I remember hearing um, a bit of a while back you mentioned um, in that first experience of yours in Manila, um, like sleeping with uh, the cockroaches. Um, and like I, I remember hearing at the time and thinking just how visceral that would have kind of been like as a motivator. Sort of, I guess, just looking, just kind of looking back at your career in your life so far as a humanitarian what sort of what kind of are your own insights in, in regard to your, your your motivations especially keeping in mind sort of how have bold they've become with with you know starting oak tree and starting global poverty project yeah i mean i think that at the end of the day um i'm, I'm motivated by a couple of couple of key things i think i'm motivated by um probably three things I'd say. Firstly um, and foremost I think my faith is really important to me mm. and that's a it's really you know a very private private thing that, that for me is uh, you know it's really really important and uh, and uh, really close to my my you know my soul. Um, secondly I think I'm continually motivated by the the, the single individuals that I've met, my journeys through South Africa, through the Philippines, through India, through Papua New Guinea—you know—through through spending a lot of time living and working in the developing world—it's—it's—it's this now hundreds of people that I can I can call out by name and say, you know, they are the, ch- the real champions, the people who are themselves striving every day to improve the betterment of their own community. And, and a lot of their own community, and so for them, that are a huge motivator. I, I remember the last one of the last days I was in South Africa, back in 2002 and three. I got a phone call. Sorry, I was. I I got a phone call from um, some friends back in Australia, and I I had a chat with them, and then I went back. To, I went to bed that night, and I woke up at about five o'clock in the morning with a knock on my door, and uh, I was like, who would be knocking on my door at five a.m. And I woke up and I pulled open the door, and there in front of me were a hundred Zulu students who were all from the orphanage I was living at, with a flower in their hand. And they walked into my room and they threw flowers all through my room to say thank you. And, and I, I felt like I felt I was so moved at that time. I felt like saying to them, you know, huge thank you to you because they they are the they are the the, the amazing individuals who are working day in and day out in such challenging. Where you have the highest incidence of HIV/AIDS of anywhere in the world, you know they are the true inspiration. And um, and then I think finally, the final motivator is um, it's the, the the big and small things that we have on a policy level because I'm convinced that charity, while it's important, very finite. You know, charity can never be the final solution to the end of extreme poverty. It's simply isn't enough charitable giving amongst philanthropists, except in the, in the case of the ultra-wealthy like Bill Gates, that could actually take a serious dent out of extreme poverty. And so, with that in mind, we have to turn to the role of government. And the role of government, I believe, is critically important by virtue of the sheer capacity of government through effective and targeted giving to make a big impact. And so that's why I'm motivated to focus on macro policy as much as on grassroots action, because I really believe that if we actually want to end extreme poverty, then we have to focus on macro policy.
we want to keep giving charity, then it's okay to give to great NGOs because there are great organisations who are having a good impact, but they will never be the final solution to the end of extreme poverty. Perhaps, perhaps on, a, on, a, on a grassroots delivery level in the developing world, yes, NGOs provide an amazing framework of delivery, but they are, the, the sheer volume is, is much larger when you consider, say, the volume of the President's program for combating HIV AIDS in Africa, based out of the United States. That was a phenomenally huge program that dwarfed any other previous program focused on HIV AIDS um, awareness and um, alleviation. And so, you know, governments are a large part of the answer, whether you like it or not. That was very insightful. Like, is just being sort of obviously a very inspiring person, Dan, I was saying before. And I guess sort of in saying that, you're very kind of curious to know, like, I guess like, were I, like, personally to undertake what you've achieved, I would find that personally very intimidating to kind of to set forth in that. Are you kind of ever intimidated by your own boldness? Like, does that make any sense? Am <laughs> um, I intimidated by my own boldness? I think that... Um, I think if periodically... You know, you get a um, you get a you know a, a check a check on reality when you see how things have grown. Like particularly, I've, I've been reflecting recently on how you know when Simon Moss and I started the Global Poverty Project back in 2008, only a few years ago now, we uh, we kind of thought that it would um, focus on delivering one our, our presentation, 1.4 billion reasons, taking that message around the world, but already. The organisation has grown so rapidly to now have offices in in Australia, New Zealand, London, um, the US, and now Canada, and that's just in the last two and a half years. And we now have, you know, literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people involved already. And I, I guess that, um, in some ways, when you have a reality check periodically, you go, "Wow, I didn't think it would grow like that yeah. <laughs> so quickly." So like, I don't, maybe, maybe not so intimidated, but often in awe of how generous people are in, in terms of giving their time. And uh, and um, it's, the, it's the sheer pace in which, which good ideas and great people can work together to achieve things. Yeah. Um, I think that often you you don't realise when you, when you put something out there that it's going to grow the way it does. And I think that the Global Poverty Project has certainly grown um, in both a manner and a way that, that we could have, you know, we strategized very closely with all of our growth, but we could have never anticipated some of the aspects of our growth. That we'd, we'd have board members, like one of our board members is, for example, the former First Minister of Scotland, who's pretty much the Prime Minister of Scotland, who's um, now joined that board. We have incredible board members from, from the Gates Foundation. We have um, people like Jackman, who's, who've got right behind us. Um, and has joined our board also, and, and just some phenomenal people who you could have, we could have never dreamed back in 2008 that they would have been excited by the idea of the Global Poverty Project, and uh, and they since have. So it's incredibly encouraging. And just finally, um, Hugh, do you, do you do you find it easy to sort of to to negotiate the balance between kind of your your idealism and your hopes and dreams for for development and also kind of what you know is practical and, and pragmatic? Or do, do, do you find that kind of quite easy to, to negotiate, like just within yourself? Um, 
I think that's uh, probably not not that easy to negotiate because, you know, we'd we'd like to have seen extreme poverty ended yesterday, mm. you know. But but I think that that what I what I've recognised, and this is, comes back to one of my sources of inspiration, is I, I've realised that a lot of a lot of this inspiration lies in, in the life of the great man William Wilberforce, mm-hmm. who back in the 1800s worked for the abolition of the slave trade in Britain. Um, because although he ran huge rallies, got thousands of signatures, ultimately, the thing that ultimately led to the change in policy that he needed was not just the rallies and the signatures. It was a very dear and, and clever plan um, to change the law surrounding a thing called the flag of convenience, which basically gave pirates on the high seas either the permission or not the permission to board ships and uh, he changed the laws on, on a very sidewind issue that ultimately had enormous impact on ending the slave trade in Britain um, and you can see that all documented he was an incredibly clever clever man and so I, I think that that highlights that when we're talking about issues of extreme poverty we have to be equally clever we can't assume that that people just care about it, and that's going to be enough. You know, we have to be very clever in the kind of policies that we aim for and the ways in which you can use policy to achieve inadvertent outcomes. And I think that, that in, in the same way, you know, when I look at our goals, um, and, and I constantly have to calibrate, you know, as you say, what's realistic and what is achievable, we always look at it through the lens of, which policy maker the capacity to influence which policy outcome and and which which players are interested in achieving this outcome so we can form a broad based coalition to work together to achieve that. You know, that they're the key questions we always ask. And and then and then what is our what is our model? Like what are we what are we gonna use um, to engage the public in a in an active dialogue around the millennial development goals, around like the end of polio, um, or, or movements like fair trade. What are what are the points of dialogue, and how can we get people in Australia, people in the United States, people in the UK, actively talking about this, and ultimately tipping the needle um, and moving the needle um, for politicians around the world. Well, you're hugely inspiring, and uh, your time must be very valuable. So um, we really appreciate um, you giving us your time. Thank you so much, Dan. Thank you, Do- thank you, Dominic. Great to chat with you. Cheers, no thank you. Worries, mate. Thanks very much. Cheers. See you guys. I want to know how does this happen? How is it that a, a kid dies every three seconds from extreme poverty? I don't understand how we could have let it got to that. Thank you very much there from um, Hugh Evans. <coughs> Dan, to wrap up um, goal eight, um, and I guess the, the the program, the lot, the lot. Um, so, yeah, c- c- conclusions on, on, on goal eight, just okay. quickly. Um, enormously broad, yeah, and I think broad. deliberately broad to pack in um, everything that didn't fit neatly into the rest of the goals, yep. which I don't think is a bad thing because yep. these goals are supposed to be ambitious. And they did give it a nice title, Global Partnership the, for Development. Yeah, it's lovely. I, I, the, I like the, the ring of that. Si- like Siamese ring of quadruplets. That. Siamese quadruplets. Um, uh, target one is going to be a, an ongoing process for hundreds of years. It's a I bit think complex. Yeah, I, I think the answers are still there from the leading economists. Definitely. I, I, yeah. Yeah. 
Um, there's so much work to be done in that, you know, trading and financial systems. I think we've just come out of one of the worst financial crashes yeah. and a complete meltdown of that system. So yeah. maybe now's a good time to look exactly. at the way that that system is run. Um, quickly, not locking on the, to the other ones, um, managing country debt. The real thing, as as you mentioned, Dom, to take out of this program, if you take nothing else out of the eight weeks, 0.7%. Yep. of Nash of a country's national GDP in the rich countries yes being donated to developing countries will meet the MDGs well yeah that's, Econo- e- economists believe they will believe that will solve all of these yep. problems in terms of which, um, which all the signatories of the, um, the Millennium Declaration have um, committed to and uh, finally drugs a different, difficult one. Finding kind of a, a public-private partnership and making um, drugs for diseases in developing countries become an attractive option for yeah. pharmaceutical manufacturers. Yeah. And finally, really exciting one with um, ICTs. Um, we've seen the mobile uptake has been extraordinary um, in a lot of developing countries. Trying to get the infrastructure in um, to get as many people sort of access to the internet and being able to weigh in on global debates and access to information yeah. and um you know hopefully that is something that and i think that's this is going to be one that's just going to skyrocket yeah I, that, 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 like, very much excites me also looking at the mdgs broadly wrapping up the the entire series just gone past um where as, as we go to um to to well, this program right now it's mid 2011 mm. um so we have three and a half years to actually i don't know when it ends i don't know whether it's september 2015 or just the start of 2015 probably should have looked into that but um in any case we've, we've only got three how three four about four ish three yep. four ish years yep. to go um y- your thoughts on i mean like if, if for those that have been listening that have an idea of which which goals are being met and which targets are and aren't being met sort of thing so and it's very varied we have had, we've had some successes we've had a lot of things that are still up in the air we could still make it um if we work hard and um there are some that we've already done hmm. i think that one th- one thing that's really exciting about this is such an ambitious and really amazing project yep. the mdgs generally and just from researching um you know the last eight weeks personally i've learned so much and i think the point of the show was you know not only to hopefully educate some of the audience but to educate ourselves definitely um and i've definitely learned heaps and i think the amount of um literature around these goals and the amount of stuff that we've read on the internet and people talking about and this kind of stuff i think they've had a massive global effect on the way that people think about development yeah um uh, Hugh Evans, our interviewee for this program hinted at maybe a new set or something which will come out of Mm-hmm. you know the end of this yeah uh, and i think the we've learned a lot out of the way that these goals were structured and the ones that were met and the ones that weren't met to uh come up with you know some sort of a new framework whether it's yeah. a new set of goals or whether it's something else that um hopefully is going to um further development um a lot a lot more because as we've seen there's a, a large major- not a majority um but well probably i guess a, a majority of targets have been unmet would yep. you say across uh, the, all of it off the top of my head, it feels that way from yeah. my, my memory of the series. So it seems like there's been there's a lot of work to be done. Um, yeah. And yeah, I mean, hopefully this is like at this, least helped. The stakes are pretty high as well. Definitely. Yeah. Well, Dom, final thoughts before we um, finish it? I, th- I think, like, again, like to come back to that 0.7% thing, um, for me that just seems like such a tiny number and such an achievable thing. Um, and yeah, I... I yeah, I, I think with that in mind, I think all the all these issues are very achievable. And I guess the good thing about this is, like, the good thing about development is, you know, we're always kind of developing. And um, the nature of aid 
or not just aid, aid, because we covered so many things besides aid in the series, but um, the nature of aid is that at some point along the way, people like countries that um, are in kind of like levels of extreme poverty and that sort of thing, if once they reach a certain level of development, they kind of no longer need to receive aid and that sort of thing. And, and like at some point in time, these MDGs kind of will, you know, they'll be unnecessary because all these countries will have met this certain level of development. But um, yeah, I think that 0.7%, um, yeah, it's very, we, we still have sort of time to meet that, at least that um, mm. as a gesture sort of thing. But um, yeah, I, yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, absolutely. If anyone, uh, you know, if there's been people who've, who've stuck with us throughout the eight, yeah. very uh, big thanks to you yes. for, for listening to the whole program. Or even if this is the only one that you've listened to. Yeah. Um, I've, it's been a really interesting kind of... Uh, uh, look at this for for us too. Yeah, definitely. And, um, it's been very enjoyable to um to look at the series, Dan. Very in- very interesting ideas within um the MDGs. Absolutely beautiful. Thank you for listening. Cool. <laughs>